Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin, and I'm going to be kicking back off on a song of ice and fire real soon with my new co-host Manu, aka Manuclear Bomb. We're going to be starting that up in a couple of weeks with Sansa's third chapter in A Storm of Swords. I'm so happy to get back to it. But before then, I wanted to talk to a special man, a very special man. You know his name. But in case you don't, it's Zach from Game of Bones. How you doing, buddy? Good. How are you? I thought you were going to introduce uh, George R. R. Martin for a second. A very, a, a spe- oh, a special man. Well, right. we, we can't all just introduce George R. R. Martin on our <laughs> podcast, Zach. That's something that belongs to a very special select class of I didn't even people. try to do that, if you notice, if you, if you pay that attention. Was just, no, I totally believe you. That was just, that was the most natural... So yes, let's let's get to that. Let's get to the thing that we're all jealous of Zach of. Zach, of course, along with his co-host Hannah, runs the Game of Owens podcast, the best in the fucking business. And to, to call it a coup is an understatement. <laughs> what what Zach has pulled off here. Zach is a, is a is a clever, resourced man who knows how to accomplish things. Zach gets stuff done. Zach is, is Zach's a go-to kind of guy. But even even I was surprised. By the fact that Zach and Hannah managed to score an interview with George, Ronald Romulus Tolkien, Martin himself. Dude, well, first off, thanks for having me on your podcast, for God's sakes. I love Not a Cast, uh, and I love you, and this is this is a, a, a wonderful moment for me. I feel starstruck. And, and we're on webcam right now, and I have uh, smart lights in this room that I'm recording in, and I made them all red. Because he wants me to be of fiery. Of course, dragony and devilish. We got to get in, in the mood. We got to get in the season. It's coming soon. Well, that's very sweet of you. Thank you. We can just butter each other up endlessly for eternity. But I also want to butter up Manu before we go any further. I want to say that uh, I'm really excited for him to be on your podcast. Listen, man, we just we just talked to George and you said that uh, resources and cleverness had something to do with it. No, dude. I take no credit for this at all because I hadn't... I, I had nothing to do with this at all. It, it just completely fell in my lap, so no credit. <laughs> no no credit at all. Getting you on my podcast years ago and, and recording all the fun episodes that we've had, like stealing you away for three hours to talk about your own on Halloween for a Halloween episode, stuff like that. Sleeping in your house, eating your food, playing with your cats, etc. That was more cleverness and resource, but this this fell right into See, my lap. See, look at this. I was all ready to be jealous and frosty towards you, and now you've completely melted this old Grinch's heart. How does he do it, folks? How does he do uh, it? Maxie. But we'll, we'll, we'll get into the details. But I, I, I want to say up front, regardless of how it happened, it's just such a great interview and a great episode. So if you haven't listened to it, you got to go right over to the Game of Owns site. You can turn me off, which I will never again tell you to do. You can go right over to Game of Owns and listen to it because they, you really, you really got stuff out of him and you did such a great job. But okay, let's, so let's, let's back it up. So, okay, so... Angels came down with trumpets, and a, a shaft of sunlight illuminated oh. your face, and you heard George R. R. Martin's crackly radio distortion voice from beyond the astral mm-hmm. plane. All right, now, how did it happen? Someone more official from his team reached out to us, and they were like, hey, I don't know if we've ever talked before, but uh, I'm George R. R. Martin's guy for this kind of stuff, and do you want to talk about potentially doing an interview with George? And I had to check the email address like five times because that sure would be a, a good prank. That would be something I would do to you. So that's no that's kidding. entirely legitimate I, that you questioned that. 
There's so many different levels to it. Like uh, after we visited with him the first time, I got a strange text message on my phone where someone did not introduce himself and it was him. And I was like, I know that one of my friends made a Google voice number and they are, this is like some elaborate thing where they're, they're laughing at the fact that they think that I might be talking to George right now. Heartless, heartless. And they call yourselves their friends. I don't know why I'm your mom all of a sudden. I didn't believe it was real until the, the second trip to Santa Fe. Well, we then it was real. Absolutely. Sure. So yeah. was yeah. the person, they were a, a fan of you or just knew you from your, your splendid and spellbinding works? They said they, uh, it was George who, who asked for the Isn't interview. Isn't that something? Yeah. You're you're nodding your head knowingly, but that's not the energy that I had. I was like, "What are you talking about?" But one one fun thing about him is that he he managed to slip in pretty much every time we've uh, been around each other, especially around other people, like new people that he's introducing us to. That uh, he still doesn't know what a known is, and it's like, how many times can I tell one person what that is? He has a doormat outside of his bookstore that says. Beyond here, there be dragons. And I'm just looking at it. I'm like, oh, this is like when you're playing Dark Souls or Elden Ring or Zelda. And you're like, okay, I know that through that door, there's the boss key. They use the boss key on this door. All right. So, yeah. So, your your first reaction, you went through disbelief and suspicion, naturally. But then then mm-hmm. after it sunk in that it was happening, what did how did you feel after that? Just really excited to be able to... Uh, have that opportunity to because i know that we try to do as true and as transparent of a job that we can we don't have a lot of uh like uh ambition associated with making the podcast it it always started as a a passion project for me i was i was young my voice was a whole lot higher whenever i started doing this and (laughs) same is true for us all buddy right Uh right even like a year ago you'll go back and you'll you'll listen or you'll be like deleting old files like what is this it's true. I have aged poorly. I have noted this. And what was I talking about? What even is this thing? <laughs> also very true. Right. So, yeah, I forget what we were talking about. But um, I guess just feeling – I'm just, just grateful and excited. Sure. And uh, like, uh, like I said, just glad that we had the opportunity to talk to someone that other people wanted to hear talk tr- truthfully, you know, without cuts and – musical breaks and weird pauses and uh i knew that you know we just wanted to see what he was like and to have the chance to share that with other people is pretty exciting because i haven't been able to see that happen before and we've been you know big fans of his work for a really long time that's beautiful and how did how did hannah react uh probably about the same we just kind of look each other we're like shut up (laughs) (laughs) like what I guess what, just capital what, or W-U-T, or maybe W-A-T, like lowercase RuneScape, just what? Like, what is happening? What am I looking at right now? What are these emails? Is this, is this a good enough reply? <laughs> do, do, I, do I need to throw a fancy quote in there or something? Is my signature enough? Right. Should I have a quote from the book in my, in my email signature? Right. Whose name goes first when we sign it? Good thing you can't sweat over email. It's yeah, of, it's it's one of the advantages. I know. Now you got me on webcam asking exactly. me really deep questions. <laughs> so making it, you're in the hot seat, literally. But so okay, so you like started getting into logistics, and did you? It was right from the front. You were going to go to to Santa Fe. Well, it was funny because we were supposed to be in Albuquerque the week after we got that opening email, just for a completely random work event, putting on a convention in uh, Albuquerque. 
and uh, and North Albuquerque, so we were even closer to Santa Fe. So that's what I told his guy, and uh, he spoke to George and was like, "Yeah," because we, we I forgot to mention we had a meeting with that guy. I think he just wanted to see if we were crazy. And when he discovered you were, he was like, "Perfect." He said, "He said I'm really protective over George. We kind of see him as like a grandfather figure, and uh, I've been working with him for you know." 10 plus years, basically since the beginning, all this has went down. So whenever he, he doesn't really like have a lot of requests like this. And so whenever he does something like this, like we're, we're doing our side vetting. It's like, he's already sort of vetted the situation, but they side vetted it. And then, um, you know, once we, once we met him, then we just started communicating directly. And what, a <laughs> you're smiling. You're like, I got a scoop. No one cares about my life. Emmett. <laughs> <laughs> no one cares. I mean, I couldn't. Of, of all the the people who do a song of ice and fire related stuff, I couldn't. Uh, you're you were the best choice. You two were the best choice to have to have this chance. Not only because you're really good at it, but because of what you were saying about how kind of open ended and and curious the mindset you took to it was. And I bet he really appreciated that. He clearly responded to it. The episode alone is proof of that. But yeah, mm. how much did you? interact with him before you uh set foot in new mexico uh that was it that yeah was it? the first time that we we interacted with him directly was in person okay that was yeah. it okay yeah perfect so wow the first trip down there and then we had uh we came back in july right during the fourth of july yes yes of course i'm remembering the timeline now i remember just just getting the first wave of text from you when you had right. when you're first having the chance Right, like, hey, you're not going to believe this, uh-huh. but and I'm not lying to you. This isn't some weird cry for help. <laughs> <laughs> Again, got to do the side vetting. Very reasonable. Right. And all right, so so how many people did you interact with on the way to him? Then how, how, just just the one. Just okay, it was just the one. Okay, it wasn't yeah. it wasn't an entire procession. You didn't have Dantos and the King's Guard <laughs> yeah. and like he, a herald with a trumpet. Not really. No, I mean he had a. Another, I guess, one of his minions was sort of attached to that first scheduling email, but we didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just wanted to be abreast on like what time we were coming in and stuff sure. like that. We had to push a time, which was weird. We actually tried to cancel it because we got a little nervous. But then he, he said he wasn't going to be available on one of the days. We were like the only day we were available. And we're like, we can. We have to actually fly out at a certain time on this day that we said that we might be available. And then he was like, okay, I can do that day. And it was the day that. Uh, the uh, Jean Cocteau Theater was uh, doing its grand reopening, and I was like, "Holy crap! That's like, we incredible! Might to, we might get to stay and watch a movie after this." But uh, we did, and we just went out to eat. But yeah. So, how was his vibe? How did he seem? Just uh, being in the room, did he have a kind of like a Orson Welles pontificate kind of attitude, or was Jeez. he more kind of? Uh, was he or was he more reticent at first? Like how how was the the mood in the room? I just watched that uh, David Fincher Orson Welles film, the one that's oh, in black and white, The Mank. It's called Mank, yeah. but I call it The Mank because I'm an old man. Have you seen it? Yes, I have. So he wasn't like that. He wasn't <laughs> like that, and he also wasn't the Orson Welles that's on the uh, post serial Honeycomb. A big man needs a big serial. That was not it. Actually, my my first impression was just that he looked really good. I love and, hearing that. Uh, it was just, uh, we just like walked up to him, shook his hand, sat down. It was just the three of us sitting around this little folding table. And uh, I guess, what was his aura like? Jeez, how do I describe it? I know, it's a dumb question, but you know. It's, it's not a dumb question. It's a good question. It's just, I'm not very uh, attentive, I guess. Because <laughs> he's just a dude and it's easy to get starstruck yeah. by him, but he's, he's, he's just a guy. 
And well, uh, it's just such, as you were saying, it's just, it's an unusual situation for him specifically. So it's, it's you know, it's like the Willy Wonka gates are opening up and we're just the kids right. looking through the bars. Like, what's he going to do? Right. I think that we were just, the three of us were just trying to fill each other out, really. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it, there was a lot of, a lot of really good laughs that opened up. And then once we started cracking jokes about stuff in the beginning, then uh, it all was, it was cool. Yeah. There was one point that really stuck out where he uh, scooted his chair up like really uh, far toward us. And we were like, all right, now we're hanging out. Now, now, now this is a hang. Now he's leaning in. Absolutely. Right. Camera starts dollying in towards him and starts giving the monologue. A slow Scorsese push in. Exactly. It's like, oh, it's, it's about to happen. It's his character I, moment. It was like talking to someone who is just wise, someone who's older, like talking to a grandparent, but a really really sharp one so, so you want to be respectful toward people so you're you're nicer in general to or at least i try to be nicer to elderly folks i hate to say that about him but uh absolutely you know, 73 years old so so yeah th- that's pretty much it it's just like you don't want to you don't want to be false to people and sometimes it's easy to, to think about what you're thinking about rather than being in the moment in a conversation but that's that's one of the things that i always try to work on as a person and so it was it's like being thrown in deep water and i kind of like that i like i kind of like the pressure of stuff because it's it's fun to have a little bit of chaos because you get you get to see what people do and generally i feel like i do a little bit better in those situations you've always handled yourself very well in in an improvisatory fashion and he 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 sounded real sharp yeah he had the thing that i think a lot of older folks who are still very much on the ball and want you to know it have where they they go down paths but they always wind their way back and they have like digressions when they talk because they've just seen a lot and kind of have this sense of how a lot of different things fit together so he was weaving in and out of his own writing process and the kind of his history within science fiction and fantasy and what he's thinking about for the future and it he yeah, he sounded like he was he was choosing his words judiciously, but not because he was trying to hide anything, but because he he wanted to clarify some complex ideas. Do you think that's fair to say? Yeah, I think that's really astute. I think that he's a really good writer, and I think that all of the time spent creating the fusion of potential words and then intended words and the result that comes from them can't really not bleed into other parts of your life if you're lucky. And so I think that he probably is a little bit extra gifted in conversation because of that compared to most folks, because yeah, that's he, really, a great I think point. He, really, he really grasps how important like the next thing that you say is. Yeah. And how, what you don't say is going to kind of hover around it as sure. people realize what you could have said, but didn't, or what they thought you were going to say. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's one of the things I like about as jumping in the deep end conversationally, like you say, is you, you get a stronger sense of your own thought process, which is something you don't necessarily always pay attention to just because it's just happening and you roll with it. But when you're forced to really think about choosing your words, it makes you think about your own instincts and makes you hone them and makes you uh, attach them more carefully. That's why, you know, that's why the, the cliche of a great conversation feeling like you've eaten a great meal, it does kind of feel that way. Mm hmm. I think it's important to know yourself if you're going to do uh-huh. anything important. You have to know what you're able to do in mixture with whatever the upcoming need is. Like I hate to say challenge because that gives it a bit of a color, but if you could just call every situation in life getting up, what am I going to eat? How am I going to eat it? 
what whenever you start whenever you like you're journaling or something and you're overthinking the words that you're writing even like those those all of those small steps i think you can get better at all that stuff by doing by doing things that are like difficult to do like jumping in the deep end metaphorically with a conversation or maybe if you're a kid actually jumping in the deep end of a pool hopefully someone's there to pull you out if you don't survive if you don't actually swim to the edge but um, I think that for me, I know that I never had any real swimming lessons when I was a kid. So that's how I figured out how to at least scoot somewhat across the water for me. And so people now have tried to teach me how to tread water, like an advanced swimming maneuver. And I'm like, listen, I, I've, <laughs> I'm doing what I think instinctually is the right thing to do, but it's not working. I know, right? It's so frustrating when that happens physically, when you're like, my body should be smarter than this. My instincts should be correct. Otherwise, why do right. I have them? Treading water specifically as a kid, I always felt like this just seems like a prelude to drowning. This just seems, this seems like a trap. So you want me to stay in the same place in water? Sure. That's not a trip. Who came up with this? Sharks? Did sharks come up with this? Do you know how to do it? Can you tread water? I mean, for like a couple of minutes, but Zach, you have to see. I'm, (laughs) I'm a weak little man made of balsa wood. I'm a little Pinocchio doll who pretends to be a person. (laughs) So if it's, if it's, you know. I can run pretty well because my weird flamingo body is good at that. But yeah, other kinds of exercise, I start to wilt. That's why I always played baseball as a kid, because baseball is just a sedentary activity pretending to be a sport. So I, coordination. I always I always gravitated to that. But like but like basketball, Chloe plays basketball, she's real she's real good at it. But it's just so exhausting. I have trouble even watching because I'm just like, you look so tired. Yeah, that, I mean, yeah, basketball, it's like, hey, let's play a game to 10. And then all of a sudden you're like, I just did cardio, basically. I'm going to, yeah, I just yeah. played to two and I'm going to have a heart attack. Thanks. What's, I'm, I'm what's good. a big challenge is when you go from half court game to full court game. That's where you really learn like what you're doing bad at, your weakness in, in cardiovascular fitness. Like, wait a second, we're running to the other end again. Learning yourself is a lot of what sports when you're young is about and a lot about learning how to talk and how to how to negotiate a a heavy conversation not like a a negative one or even an an emotionally fraught one but just a serious one which is what a lot of what george was getting into is kind of having the sense of everything he's done leading him to this point yeah i'd I'd have to think so i could try to imagine to put myself in a position of someone like his but that would be almost impossible it's just such a interesting sequence of events for creators like that. And there's not a lot of them that have that kind of a, a real history in their lives. So yeah, to be at that point in it, it must be, I mean, that's some uncharted territory to be in. It's cool to be around it though. It's cool to be around all different kinds of people. But I would say like the main takeaway about just George's person is that he's just a person, you know, if there wasn't any weird uh, majesty or, or procession or anything. I don't know the right words for it, but I think you get what I mean. It wasn't wasn't really decorative. It was just straight up as whatever you're hanging out with a good friend of yours. I, I think that's how the best people probably are, and how the best people generally um, make like set up their lives. Once I think you get to a certain point of, you hear about people that are artists or just really any anybody that's successful has the resources to fuck up their lives. You hear about them potentially turning it around at a certain point because they, they see the things that really matter to them. And uh, I, I try to just remember that I should just try to be like that all the time. 
I don't know why we're talking about this. <laughs> no, I totally agree. I've had the same thoughts. You know, clarity is a, a really valuable thing, and it's easy to get tempted away from it. But clarity and simplicity and peace, if you can achieve them. I just give up. Dude, I think peace, just give up. It, that's for me is the is the is the quickest way maybe not jump into the pool maybe that's not uh, an exact analogy or connection between those two points but it just give up it's not like i'm gonna give up so i'm gonna let other people walk on me it's like i'm gonna give up and just know that i'm gonna die we're all gonna die we're all gonna be a part of this world in a a decayed manner right now we're just alive right now and so what's the actual thing that you are right now instead of overthinking it and becoming anxious about it and looking for possibilities and getting mad that you pass up potential um, moments to get some kind of a gain, like the, the sort of whole philosophy behind FOMO. Sometimes it gets extreme for some folks and it can affect your behavior. But I think that by giving up is a, a pretty surefire way just to try to get to the point as quick as possible. It's a source of a lot of misery, I think, for people, is, is a self-created obstacles. So I'm glad it sounds like George has, has a, a sense of clarity, even when he's stuck in what I'm sure would be very frustrating situations to other people. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine having something that's so important to you be so important to so many other people and also be important to a lot of other people's bottom line? And all the different variables that come from that. So that's a lot of conflict you have to negotiate and be the the even keel of and be at the center of. Right. Was there anything he yeah. said that particularly surprised you? Hmm. Surprised. Not even, I guess, in a like a shock reveal kind of way, but there, was there something in particular he said that ma- made you take stock, like as as he was saying it? I, I, I guess maybe... The, the first time that we met, we spoke some about fan-created work and how it can potentially become part of a person who's making something's mindset or at least leak its way somehow into your brain. And I was more so shocked less about him saying that because I do think that that's kind of obvious, but... I was more like uh, I took stock at how much he was aware of that and how much he thought about that. At least at some point in his life, I think he uh, probably way before the like true success of his novels, he just realized, especially in a series like GOT, where there's going to be a lot of books and there's a mystery that's unfolding over time and several mysteries that's unfolding over time that uh, even if the audience was smaller than it is now, that no matter what the size of the audience is, if people get passionate about something that they have a lot of ideas about things, how they should go or what they should be like. And uh, I think that he's been trying to keep it as pure as possible. And so I was like, hmm, that's interesting. Like, it's something you've been, like, that, that's just a really nice sort of home, homely, homey, like sort of feeling like a, like a, like a fireplace in your house. It's like, oh, this person isn't really, he's not trying to game this system. Like the system he's trying to game is himself. That's a perfect way of putting it. And he's been, you know, he's he talked in the interview about facing some humility after some setbacks, about Armageddon Rag not selling too well, and mm-hmm. just that kind of abrupt cold feeling of you're only as, as big as your last project, which George knows, hey, he's holding up his copy. 
right there. I shamefully have not read it still. You gotta read it. I'm sure it'd be up my alley. I love rock and roll era stories. I'm a there's su- White Walkers. I'm a sucker. Is that so? Dude, there's White Walkers. Are they are they real White Walkers or are they like skinny English guys who who play guitar with Johnny Winter? <laughs> they're uh they're cops. Oh well, that's that works just fine. Yeah, they're cops. They're sort of like faceless, but they get they have like angry faces. They all have the same bluish colored outfit on, and oh, they they sort of they sort of uh, behave like death. Interesting. Yeah, it was sort of a, a vision within one of these sequences pretty early in the book. At a yeah, that sounds wild. A hotel in Chicago, right beside uh, Hyde Park or Grand Park, one of the two. Mm-hmm. I forget. Crazy. Everyone should read it if. I mean, if they're listening to not to not a cast, obviously they love Asselhoff, and I think that there's a lot of seeds in there. My friend, uh, the fattest leech on Twitter, who comes on our podcast sometimes, uh, she told me basically she just told me all the smart stuff that I should look for. I didn't come up with those realizations on my own. Maybe I would have, but it's uh, good to have a reader's guide yeah. from time to time. Oh, for sure, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I need stuff like that. <laughs> I would love to know more, or love love to get him to write. A little memoir about his time teaching when he was on the Mississippi oh, and yeah. writing Fever Dream because that just that's that's just seems like a nice time in his life and seems like it was a lot different from every other part of his life in terms of where he was living and what he was doing. And that's I love I love Fever Dream. I'll eventually get back to covering those on the Nauticast, the chapters in that book because mm-hmm. it's it is so different in terms of uh, style and tone and setting from uh from everything else he's done. But, you know, I love that he, how many different genres he's tried. And I love that if you look at the span of his career, that his big one being fantasy is really such an accident and such an anomaly mm-hmm. in context with everything else he's tried. But so much of it fed into Aeswath. But yeah, he's got his, his rock and roll era book and his vampire book and mm-hmm. his horror and sci-fi. And I'm sure that has... I was going to say contributed to that mindset you're talking about, that kind of holistic mindset, but they pro- it's probably gone hand in hand. Like that mindset probably is what drew him to all those different genres in the first place. It's that art- artist sensibility. Or he was avoiding the truth. Ah. Whenever, whenever we first met each other, one, one of the, the moments that we, we truly, I, th- I felt like connected on was talking about Tolkien. And the the impression that I got is that he like loves Lord of the Rings in the Hobbit, like that he loves Tolkien deeply. And so maybe, you know, just the universe was like, listen, get, be real with yourself. Put come, an RR in your name. <laughs> come in from the cold, be the exile with your blade yes. that was broken. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, no, it's, and I can, you can see that in his work. And I think people sometimes take too far the idea that a Song of Ice and Fire is, you know, taken down Lord of the Rings or it is the, it's the post-Tolkien fantasy. Like, that's marketing language, and I get why that's sure. the way it is. Yeah. But I, I've been going back through Lord of the Rings, and it's just, it's just so emotional in a way that even the rest of Tolkien's writing isn't necessarily. And that, that sense of, of crestfallen, like, bruised romanticism where you really want to believe in things and you just don't think they're worthy of the belief you're putting in them anymore. I think that comes through really strongly in Lord of the Rings and also in A Song of Ice and Fire. I think there's there's more sense of in A Song of Ice and Fire that there's really nothing you can do about it, whereas Lord of the Rings is like, yes, we can, as a team. And right. A Song of Ice and Fire is like, no, no, especially not as a team. So there is there is that aspect to it, but... Yeah, there's not a lot of magical beasts in A Song of Ice and Fire. There's no elves. 
Right. Well, there's only the White Walkers. Those are those are the closest thing to the elves. Are the ones who want you all dead. Right. And there's in a dragon who's like a dog. It's like okay, that makes sense. It might be mythical, but at the same time, it's also just a product of evolution. It wasn't sent down from the heavens necessarily. That's a great point. And one thing, one thing I always liked, you know, Tolkien has has his famous distaste for allegory. And especially for the idea that Lord of the Rings was an allegory for World War II. And he one, one retort I always liked from him, he said, if I'd really been planning to write about World War II, neither the elves nor the orcs would have cared about the hobbits. They both <laughs> would have used the hobbits as slaves. Ooh. And I was, I was like, yeah, that's that's exactly right. If you were telling, trying to tell an honest story about empires clashing together. And so that, we, that more is on. what you get in Aeswath. But we still love it, though, even though, like you say, it's not really honest. Because, I don't know, I guess the elves were able to be less opportunistic because they felt really safe and because they felt really powerful and because they felt like they always had an escape hatch. But what about the dwarves? What about how much they really love the hobbits or no, how absolutely. much they are able to love their uh, their rivals? Like how Gimli's able to feel about Legolas. I mean, yeah, sure, he meets and Galadriel. Galadriel. Yeah. But that capacity is so real. Maybe the threat of Sauron was so big, but I don't think they really felt it as much as they really felt it later in the series. I don't, I think the Lord of the Rings, while it, it certainly has is lacking in imagination when it comes to certain characters, it's, I think it's less simplistic in its morality than its reputation suggests. Because I think it is, even in the text, it's very all the all the elves are very aware that they have the capacity to be horrible. Like there's a great bit in Rivendell when the elves basically admit they can't tell the mortals apart. <laughs> like, they have to be told which one's a man and which one's a hobbit, because they're like, whatever. In the same way that if you told me that's a different ant from that ant, I'd be like, sure, yeah, but I don't care. Which one can sting me? Which one's poisonous? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, like, those those little reminders, I think, are interesting. And there's also, you know, what gives Lord of the Rings that bittersweet melancholy thing. And this is something I think George has always clearly responded to, is the sense that that old world is passing away. And that the yeah. elves used to be way more glorious than they are now, and all you're seeing is their leftovers, and that same with Sauron, and that you also get, you know, you get that I think on a more kind of personal level through Aswath is is people yeah. look people looking back at their lives and going, I don't even know when it went wrong, <laughs> I just know that it did, and that's why I loved hearing George look back on the sweep of his life because I think he writes, I think he writes really really well about people trying to make sense of their past and usually failing but he he spoke about it so well when people really responded to the portraits that da vinci was painting they're like wow let's give you a lot of money or at least apartments for you to house <laughs> all of your your young lovers one apartment each it's the law yes we have we have 13 apartments for you whenever you come visit this town that when, worked when, out when people responded really well to those portraits um, I don't know if they had the words, or maybe they did at the time, and we're just the ones that are failing them, uh, to say why it was good. I don't know if they have the words for that. But when I look at it, to me it looks like real. it's it's trying to become real. I look at the Mona Lisa, and it's transfixed people for centuries. And I see it and I go, well, what it seems to have done is sort of like sum up everything that it could. And I think that that's what everything is at all times, everything that it can be at once. And so we try to pull this weird, non-existent thing through the antenna of our brains and create stuff in this world that is in addition to everything. 
there's already everything, every moment is housing everything that there can be. So we're crafting a piece of marble or we're painting an image. And so just to craft a piece of mar marble into a tool or to, to draw a, a picture of something really crudely is, is already kind of magnificent. It takes all of these hundreds of thousands, billions of years of, of life to evolve to a point where it can have an antenna and it can operate and do those things. It can take something that doesn't exist and make something else that doesn't exist. And whenever you're writing a book or like I said, drawing a picture, whatever it's, I, I think it's kind of like all the same thing. And so I think one thing that people like you and me and him and others love about Tolkien is that all of those different layers, and we're going to see some of those now in the rings of power, they're like all accounted for, you know, like we, we come into the Lord of the Rings at the third age and really we come into it post the Hobbit. And so much has already happened that justifies and explains how it got here, that it already has so much life in it. And so whenever you're sitting down to paint this portrait, you also, you have to be like amazing at technique, like the best possible, but also the idea of what he's making, like how it sums up the moment. There's all these different ways to attack the problem. And I think that a lot of authors don't do the same sort of groundwork laying that people like Martin and Tolkien do where you can go back and you can see that Sauron tempted the elves and you can see how that narratively weaves its truth to get to the point where we actually start the actual story. And so the same sort of thing is happening with fire and blood. And uh, there's a lot of other mysteries that we don't quite know about. And if you listen to our interview, um, you can hear him say that a lot of those things he doesn't know about either. But I think that he's taking that same energy that we were talking about earlier of just relying on the real thing that's inside of you instead of trying to rely on what the right answer is and that the right answer might come to you. So he makes Ulthos because he's like, that sounds cool. But then later, if he's actually put to the task of of making Ulthos make sense in the world, I don't think he's scared of doing that. That's a good you way know, of putting I, it. He doesn't necessarily think, have to, but he could if he wanted to. Right, exactly. And so I think that just making it real and making it seem real is how you get that foundation to do what you're saying, where he's talking about these actual humans, because they're another part of that technical and or talented idea, gifted artistic expression that just Im imbues the thing with even more truth and even more magic and even more detail and magic in that sense, just being where all of these different concepts and execution come together at the same, hopefully same, really awesome point. And so that's why we get around these works of art and museums. We, we did that at the Met. We're just like standing in front of that yes, stained sir. glass for like 45 minutes. That we were. Lo looking at different sections of it, but like they – Th that feeling that we got, like they did that on purpose. They wanted us to feel those different feelings for different reasons. And that might not be as direct as those two paintings we were looking at where it would looked happy. And then the next version of it, there was the, the gaping maw of the cave that just had this feeling of, of I don't know, it's just, it, it gave you the sinking feeling inside of yourself. Absolutely. I remember that, that day at the Met with you when we were, yeah, we were looking at this, this work of stained glass and we kept, we kept noticing details and pointing them out to each other and then stepping back to reobserve the whole in light of those details. Yes. And that's what I, I mean, that's what I love about yes. all kinds of art, whether it's literally podcasting right now. Exactly. <laughs> whether it's, whether it's a painting, like you say, whether it's a book, the, 
the sense that of being able to infinitely toggle in and out of it and like i could i could think about this and gain something out of it on the most granular detail and right. then pull back to see that one grain of sand and how it interacts with this entire pattern that's but, that's the beauty of it my man but people make that stuff though like it's true. That, and it's worth us standing in front of and considering people make that stuff so there's so many different kinds of art i mean the way that you make food i could I actually saw a recipe Last night, Cooking a friend a, sent me a great comparison to it. Actually, yeah, go it's on. It's art you can eat. A friend sent me a TikTok uh, yesterday, or no, it was a YouTube video of a guy making microwaved spaghetti. Okay, I'm on board so far. That was his recipe, and it was a funny video. And I bet it's I mean, it looked good. <laughs> There's so much spaghetti and red sauce. It looked delicious. I would eat. I would eat the entire thing. Right, it's now. hard to mess up and spaghetti. That's true. I saw someone, quick side note, uh, take uh, on another meme, uh, Ziploc bags of spaghetti to a baseball game. That was beautiful. Like, mm. What a smart idea. You just eat right out of the bag. Or, but, but then today I saw, I was watching recipe videos of like the perfect way to make Italian cuisine. And it was a lot more uh, thoughtful than the uh, <laughs> microwave spaghetti video. I so it's like you can so. write all different kinds of books. I love True. Hank the Cow Dog. And there's a through line of truth in it that in, in consistency and you know uh, talent skill polish whatever that makes it attractive to continue to read some stuff you can't even like understand and you go all the way down to gibberish and it's like what am i getting out of this that's like a bad carving or a bad painting the, like the one that i sent you that's hanging up in my house okay did the, i did some color blending and a couple bob ross tricks that i picked up from just watching him on twitch sometimes and then you have George R. R. Martin, who's like putting all this work into making something that is worth standing in front of. That's like glowing and glittering. And we're the ones who make that stuff. Like the world didn't make that stuff unless you count the fact that the world made us. The world, like we're making that stuff. And so I think people that are really smart um, or really obsessed, one of the two, sometimes accidentally uh, dedicate a whole bunch of their lives to being able to do it. And I think that at least with fantasy, at least that kind of fantasy, um, there's like a big benefit to having a good instinct, but also to have the knowledge to build why it all happened. And I, I think that that's really the only true comparison between Tolkien and him, other than the fact that they both have RR in their name. <laughs> and that's one thing I you were going to ask me, like what I didn't ask him that I wanted to ask him. Yeah, was, yeah, was there a question? I was going to ask him about that. I totally did not. I totally forgot. I got lost in the conversation. But yeah, he was just that good. It's Remus and Romulus. Clearly, that's no, just. <laughs> it's just he's just Tolkien. That's That'd just why. No, yeah, I, I mean, I, what, I would, what a true shout out! Like way to just give yourself up like that. Like yeah, I. I mean, that's so real, dude. It, you know what I mean? Like that energy is probably why he's so successful. Like it's true. So it real. is simultaneously the nerd, nerdiest and ballsiest thing you could possibly right. do. Right. It's, it's absolutely terrific. No, I love what you were saying about just the, the level of fidelity to detail. And it reminds me of a, a critic who had this great phrase about Proust. Because Marcel Proust had In Search of Lost Time, the just million-page novel that he devoted endless years to writing. And just getting more and more detailed in his memories of the past and how they were triggered and led to other memories. And, and, and one critic described it as, as art with a roof over its head. Where you feel mm. like every, every detail of the world is encapsulated within it and there's nothing outside of it and that kind of just that holistic sensation is a, is a really powerful thing and i think george has a good album achieved that density i know right some sometimes that density he's achieved it to a fault 
as 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 here we are still waiting but it's a it's a feeling that it's that it's inexhaustible which is a, is a r- remarkable quality to have in art isn't that what nature kind of seems like though like even if we get hit by an asteroid there's still going to be some kind of formation of all this thermal energy at this part of our solar system i don't know if life necessarily is going to come out of it but well, and it's, it's still going to be there. And it's a structure around empty things is, you know, mostly what life is. We're mostly water. And if you break it down to the atomic level, we're mostly nothing. And the universe is mostly dark matter. Keep going. And in the, that's it. And in the same way, you know, a lot of what makes great art is built around illusions and making things seem bigger and more mysterious than they might be in the author's mind and having a sense of edges of the map. And motivations that are simply hinted at and things you, you get to pick up on later. And how you, you play with the audience mind and know what rabbit holes you can lead people to go down. That's one of the reasons I love with The House of the Undying so much is because it's George basically showing us that. It's like, here's what story is. It's a hallway you walk, walk down and there's a room and you go, what's that? And then the door closes. That's what stories Dude, I are. I love having these conversations with you. That's so nice because I, I, I just—it's nice to hear people say weird shit like that. But ah, it's thank you. Completely what it is. It's completely what it is, though. And to have the awareness to put it out like that, so straightforward, but also keep it within the the mechanics of the town, the the world, let alone the town. You know, is it's so fun. It's like a nice little treat to unpack. That's why we all love it so much. I was wanting to ask him about all that stuff too, but. I don't know. I just, I just follow the vibe you, as but you were, as you should. You did, you did such a good job interviewing him because you didn't pepper him with questions. But every time you did ask him something, it's it you you pivoted so gracefully. Where you were always whatever you would ask was always something to do with what he had just said, but it would still take him in a new direction. Mm. Which like that's the holy grail of interview questions. You were you both did such a good job, and he was he was clearly so into it and talking so openly and frankly, and it was just it was just a a very it was a beautiful moving thing to witness you know it wasn't it it and partially just cuz i know you but also just cuz it didn't feel like the kind of interview that i was like strip mining it for easter eggs sure. and like half listing oh that's a that's a vaguely new thing i can get a tweet out of that like i was right. just we were chloe and i were just listening to it and we weren't doing anything else and it was just really really nice that kind of fireplace the aura you were just talking about right it really on, it really man. felt like that so you did a right on you did a wonderful job communicating both with him and with the audience so right kudos on. kudos to you and Han- and to hannah hannah's not here but hannah's a badass oh yeah no she killed it she i mean it just you know snapped right into place whenever it was the most important as usual that's the kind of people that it's nice to have around it's a it's fun it's a it's a good mix to have and uh like I said, it was it was really useful for that conversation because it was just you know it was a big deal for us. So it's nice to be able to do it with a good team that you like. And it's so interesting because you were talking about the fidelity to the real and how that happens in paintings. And there's just the moment of historical transition I've always been very interested in when photography first hit the scene and then became widespread and then became part of consumer culture and pop culture and then movies happened. And then so you have this this long-held goal of, of the painting as this journey to recreate reality. And then painting gets trumped by photography and then movies right. in terms of imitating reality. So then sure. you, you're kind of forced to go, you have to incorporate that or take it in new directions. And the novel is interesting in that way too. That's one of the reasons 
Uh, I've always been so glad and interested that George is such a movie buff, not just because I am too, but also because I think you can really tell in his writing that he's thinking cinematically, like, and this is where the music would go up and this is where the camera would push in. And I can, he's just, that's a part, I think, I think that's what a lot of the detail is a, is about is that George is like set dressing everything in his mind. And he's like, you know, we got to have these clothes and this mirror over here. And that, that, that visual appeal to his writing is so strong uh, and comes through so clearly. And it's just, I lo- just love that he has his movie palace that he still has and has kept going. I think that's, that's just a beautiful thing. Yeah, no, wouldn't it be nice to set yourself up like that? That would be good because you did a good job. That would be my dream if I had a, a, a chunk of change to spend and no responsibilities to attend to would be a, uh, would be opening a nice, beautiful movie theater and playing whatever the hell I wanted there. You know, what I want to tell you about is uh, there's something that we talked about a few times called, there's a few names for it, the Winky Rule or the, or the Winky Theory, and then it eventually, um, one, of, uh, one of the people we were having dinner with said, well, it's more of a Winky guideline <laughs> at a certain point. So we were kind of tearing it apart over the course of a couple different conversations, but this is something whenever he can sort of sense uh, it's time to move on a conversation, he just sort of brought out a couple times. It was such a great little anecdote that spun to a lot of different uh, areas. But uh, So the Winky Rule, there's this show, um, I think it was 1953, I might be wrong, it was one of his first favorite shows. It was the music that we put in the episode. Yes, yes. That we have recorded with him, that interview. Um. That's the beginning and ending music from the intro of that show. It's called Rocky Jones Space Ranger. And Rocky Jones Space Ranger is a live action, like, um, like sort of buddy, uh, uh, like episodic TV series. They've got a, a dame and I'm describing it now. I'm realizing how poorly I'm describing it compared to how it was it's described the 50s. to me. It's the show Woody was on in Toy Story. It's, it's Buzz Lightyear's show. I'm picturing it now. Exactly. That exact same energy. So, um, so the Winky rule, Winky was on, was, uh, Rocky's sidekick for a season. And then Winky was replaced for kiting bad checks that he didn't know as a kid though, like what the politics behind that was. So Winky was replaced by an actor and a, a different actor and in the show without really any ceremony by a man by the name of Biffin Cardoza. And Biffin was not as fun as Winky. He wanted Winky. And so the Winky rule is potentially that you sort of fall in love with. Maybe that's too strong of an opinion, but you you gather uh, strong feelings for like the first thing that you're exposed to. And that has a lot to do with maybe people's reactions to things. And then that led into cracking a joke about Dario and they just giving him blue hair. There'd be no issues there. Stuff like that. Right. But uh, yeah, so the winky rule, but that was, that was a really fun conversation um, or, or, or theory or guideline. And like I said, I'm, I'm <laughs> regulation, like five, five standard protocol, the, uh, mm-hmm. the, the beautiful prose that actually is attached to it. But I hope <laughs> someone other than me is able to get something out of that. It's an interesting generational thing also to have the genre fiction inspired by that era for people who grew up in the space age 
and and fifties mm. and sixties media and how that that influenced their writing. It's a and, and then the trickle effects down from there. It's a fascinating historical thing as well as artistic. So, oh yeah, Can you he's imagine a vault coming up, and that's the shows that you have. I mean, like we had cool ones for sure. I guess we could have always went back and somehow seen those episodes before YouTube. But imagine you're waiting for the new Rocky Jones each week and they've got a rocket ship and all this interesting sound design and they're trying to do weird stuff with practical sets. That's so fun. It makes me think, though, of the bit in A Christmas Story when he's so excited to have his decoder ring and get the messages Mm. from his favorite radio show every week. And by the end of the show, after a few months, he'll have put it all together to get the secret message. And it's just an ad for Ovaltine. (laughs) <laughs> that's terrible that the, so the decoder ring got messages from a tv station in that well, i can't remember it's like he's like it's a like a li- it's little orphan annie i think is the show and it's like they he sent in 10 bucks because it's the 50s 10 bucks with your you know tops of cereal boxes to get your little right. orphan annie decoder ring and at the end of every episode they'd be like all right for you kids at home with your rings five four seven and then you okay. get your ring out and you get a few more letters. And he'd been doing this for like weeks was the conceit in the movie. Wow. And he was like getting to the end of the message and it was just spelling out, be sure to drink your Ovaltine. Wow. And you watched him just grow up in an instant as he realized, oh, I was, I am the product in this scenario. Holy crap. I have just been, been misled and lied to by the system. So How, who is doing that to us in that way? Like I know oh, everything our... is just that now. Now right. that's, I, they want now that's data. all of everything. <sighs> yeah. Well, what is what is hot D like? What are they getting out of it? Well, that isn't that a fascinating question. I'm I've I've gone from looking at the show as a mild curiosity to being something I am genuinely excited for. But I still okay. but I still have no idea how it's going to go over. Do you? What is mm. what is what is your wild prediction at this point? Do you think this is going to be popular? I think it's going to be better than Game of Thrones. Here we come with the hot D really, takes. I really do. Qua- I think like it's better, be better in terms of quality or in terms of eyeballs on it? Uh, I don't know about viewership. That's hard to say because GOT was so special. That's true. That's what I'm thinking. It didn't start It'll, like that. No, that's just, a very good point. It became – it was – it was convenient for us all to talk about one thing. That's you know, also very true. Sort of root on it like it was a sport and these different characters were like sports teams. And that's, I don't know if it's going to have that same appeal. Which which was unfortunately the problem that it, that it, you know, I'm not blaming anybody, but that is where things went in terms of the overall attitude. And that's mm-hmm. that's not the kind of ending it has. I mean, I mean, there is no ending that would work for rooting for characters like sports teams because the appeal of sports is that it doesn't end. So well, everyone, it's like only one team is left. That, exactly, that could be and an even that team sport. is <laughs> right. That's uh, that's every, that's every rugby. football game in the playoffs. They all die after <laughs> like the the Super Bowl is literally you get to live. I mean, we, we're we're talking sarcastically, but if the Super Bowl ended with the losing team getting shot, I would probably watch the Super Bowl. Yeah, I think everyone. Would. <laughs> yeah, I think. And now we've just arrived would. at the purge. So yes, well, we've also arrived at the point though. That's the point. Uh, that is, I don't know. That, no, you may you make an excellent excellent accidental point uh well that's how that's what i'm saying just follow it (laughs) exactly Olthos is Olthos, man we'll figure it out (laughs) uh but yeah no i mean that's and so i don't think that kind of that kind of audience will develop around the show but i am surprised by how good it looks which makes me sound very cynical but i was expecting it to look cheap and it does not look cheap and it looks like it might actually have a story structure that works because they have a lot of characters to incorporate, but if they set up a handful of those dynamics well, I think it'll carry it. Dude, I 
think that it was a privilege to do the show before on a network that he was a huge fan of and me for the same reasons, really. Uh-huh. Um, but I think that now with the combined experience of the decades of story crafting and industry maneuvering and specifically some, some of it with television, plus being the living J.R.R. Tolkien that made Game of Thrones, plus the fact that a lot of people say that it would have been better if he had more to do with the end of it, stuff like that. I think that he, I mean, I don't know if it's going to go this way, but to me it seems, and based on my experience and what kind of a human being I think that he is, it feels like he's in the perfect position to to uh, pull some weight around and make some awesome things happen. And I think that getting to choose someone that was legitimately his friend that makes and a big also difference. Absolutely. the guy that we loved from Hard Home, the guy that we loved from the Winds of Winter episode, to be his co-showrunner, I just feel like he and they are taking this seriously and they want to not just make money and to make a splash, but I think that they want to like make an impact. And I don't know what the, the, the narrative or human tale like takeaway will be impact that they're, that they would like to make. But I think just to like do a good job, I think is it's just the energy that I give from it. I just don't feel like that's as it should this, be. That's great. Yeah. I hope so at least. And so, there was definitely a lot of hunger in the early Game of Thrones seasons, and you could feel that, and that's one of the reasons why it was so damn good. You're absolutely right. And that was, even as I, like a lot of the later seasons, have softened on some stuff, there is that feeling is gone uh, in the later right. seasons of Game of Thrones. And yes. to yeah. to be able to recapture that spirit, but also with more money than they had for mm. the first couple seasons of Game of Thrones, right. uh, that could be something truly special. So I, am, I think so, dude. I am... I am uh, my excitement is as is as unqualified as it can be, which I guess isn't isn't saying all that much, but it's true. It looks like it's going to lean more into what it is rather than Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings mixed with an HBO show. I think That's that it's point. going to try to be literally high fantasy adapted to screen, and I've never seen that outside of a cartoon. And so if they're if they're literally able to do that, I think that's partly why they got Matt Smith. You know that that shot of him pointing a sword on the bridge. He's gonna be my favorite part. It's he's just gonna be he's gonna be just delightful. Think about it, dude. High fantasy for real on TV. Like not not what we can do at the time um, because we're making this for New Line Cinema and it's gonna be a blockbuster blockbuster film. Which they did an amazing job. They got really close, really close. I love Lord of the Rings. Game of Thrones, great job too, but still it had that HBO feel while also feeling like it was a fantasy show that was shot incredibly like uh, thoughtfully. I agree. But I think that they, they might have the flexibility to lean on to making this uh, like a, a real vibe. And if they're able to pull that off, I think that the quality of this show that is in my brain, and it could totally not, it could be a CW ripoff. It could, it, could, it could feel less good than The Witcher, but... If they do do a good job of it, I think that it'll be included in the conversations of shows like Breaking Bad, if they're lucky. Like something that was just like a, a truly specific vibe that was expressed over the whole course of it. And I think that there's so much potential beyond the Dance of the Dragons, especially if it's successful, to delve into other areas of Fire and Blood if they want to stick to the Targaryen lineage uh, specifically. Yeah, that's and very to- interesting to play around with the format of the show and potentially give us way different stuff. Part of what's going on, I think, is that it's very easy 
for fantasy to get lazy when it's just war. You know what I mean? Because then it's mm-hmm. just it's very easy to make it just swarms of, of That's something he talked about indistinguishable actually. CGI monsters. Is that right? Yes, indeed. It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I mean, please, please go on though. But yeah, he did. He talked about that same thing. And that it's it's that can I mean not that there's anything wrong with that. It can be done very well, but it can also be a crutch uh, in terms of your style and in terms of your storytelling. And obviously the later seasons of Game of Thrones trend more towards big battles just because that's where the story generally leads. But there is one of the things I think people really like about both the first book and the first season is that it has more of a mystery angle to it with with Ned Stark's investigations and yeah. trying to understand what, what, the, what the real plot is at work. And that sense of intrigue and tension within a fantasy setting, I think, is can be really compelling. And that's why I'm I'm particularly interested in season one. Of House of the Dragon because it really can't be war. I mean, they can they can show like the stepstones to get big yeah. battle scene out of it, which they will, which they are. But that the dramatic tension is going to have to come elsewhere, I think, is is a, a wonderful necessity for them to work around. So, I mean, I guess where yeah, where do you think season one's going to end up? I guess like maybe around Storm's End, or just like the the real kicking off of hostilities, or maybe just with. I mean, they're skipping forward in time so much. I think that we'll get the blacks and the greens dynamic introduced around um, like seven or eight. Mm-hmm. And I think that... And then Viserys dies. I think that that'll be probably in nine. Yeah, I could see him him, him dying and then the floodgates are open, ready for season two. Yeah. That makes sense. It'll be him di- dying probably. And then a few actions, like don't say this to anyone. Let's call this meeting. And then they'll probably start out with the the like small council scene, um, and on the last episode maybe. I can picture did, that. Did you know which one I'm talking about? The one where the, the guy's first... throat gets cut, or or yeah, yeah, yeah. where Christini, aka Kristen Cole, aka Christini, as my phone keeps <laughs> autocorrecting <laughs> Kristen. Krusty <laughs> the clown steps up with his big butcher knife. Uh huh. Yeah, where Christini like changes sides and he feels that ambitious pull. He's like, wait a second. We're now in charge of everything. I can just so do this. What are we gonna do? Yeah, yeah. I can do. I can do this, and it's it's not a decision that I'm making underneath people. We're at the top, and I'm making this a top a fi- level. I'm decision. making policy now. Yeah, right. There is some people can't handle that, dude. They 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 do shit like that. They cut throats. That's true. That's that yeah. that would be a wild way to go. Is there anything you're in particular looking forward to to seeing adapted, or any one character you're most interested in? Well, it looks like they're really playing up Amon's uh, passage of time. Hopefully, because mm-hmm. I know, I know, I know we're getting young Amon, or at least I think I know that. And so, seeing him become like a Damon wannabe mm-hmm. and doing it with the person that Rhaenyra also enjoys yes. romantically, it's also that's going to be so beautiful to play out on screen. And it's something that you could like, you could get out of Fire and Blood, but to have it shown to you and have it really acted out, and like I said, dude, or like you said. So there's going to be a big battle in the Stepstones. It's going to feel like Game of Thrones did some stuff on TV, right? If it's that patient, if it's that patient, where we're like going into the Stepstones and worried about the conflict and like, will it work or will it won't work? You can bet the juice that they're going to squeeze out of someone like Amon for what happens over the God's Eye and Storm's End and everything else. You know, holy crap. Like, I think it's just going to be patient and slow. And it's going to be, I think, like... When when we watched, we all knew, but a lot of people that didn't read the books, all the people that didn't read the books really didn't know unless they were spoiled, like how 
someone as seemingly sheepish as Daenerys Targaryen would eventually become what they are. So I think that watching these people become characters in court scenes and at dinners and in solars become dragon riding, shouting, proclaiming, scheming, backstabbing people in the context of it being slowed down to have the juice squeezed out for a TV series is going to be really satisfying. And so if they're able to do what I just said, but also what I was talking about before, make it feel like something they had, like no one's ever seen before. I think that, I think that there's a possibility that this show, which we were all like, sort of like, Oh man, like HBO is going to try to make some more money. (laughs) Here we go. Everyone. Mm -hmm. Right. I think there's a possibility that people might be like, you know what? Like this dragon show is like, like, this is good. You know what I mean? Like, this is good. Like, maybe almost in a way that they didn't say about Game of Thrones before. Because there's always some people that were like, eh, it's too big. I don't want to watch that. But, like, there may be, like, the thing where it's like, no, you need to watch this. Not because it's got da-da-da and dragons and Jon Snow and Daenerys and, like, this guy talks really good. But, like, people, people might actually be like, it's just a vibe. You know, like, it's actually good. I wish I had better words to describe it, but I think you... You usually get what I mean when I say this kind of shit. I do my best. Please translate. (laughs) No, I just, I am looking forward to people wanting to be in Westeros again. I think that, that would be a beautiful thing. Because I think, I think some of the fighting over season eight just reduced the desire to be in this world. And so bringing that, I mean, I never lost touch because I'm weird. But I think it would be nice to have a general vibe of, Westeros not being the place that makes people roll their eyes because of season eight, having yes. having this be a place you want to hang out in again, I think could be a could be a wonderful thing. Or season seven. Let's not put it all on eight. <laughs> agreed. Agreed. Uh, yeah. Just it's. I just rewatched that stuff recently, or I, I just rewatched the final season. I know it sounds like they'll be so casually or are kind of poo pooing it. Um, it, I'm. I don't mean to be disrespectful, respectful at all to the countless hours of work that people put into it. That's not what we're saying, but. What we're just pointing out is the difference between the thing that made everyone fall in love with it, that hunger, that that true desire to make something that from moment to moment had uh, – they knew exactly what they were doing rather than this is going to make some people go, yeah. Absolutely. I don't it's, know. No, there's, there's a lot I, I still do love about the later seasons, especially isolated scenes, individual ideas, and, and, and concepts. But there is – there was – there was definitely a palpable thing sitting in where we're showing off. And I'm like, that is that is the exact opposite of what what I got out of you before. You can't have a character like Euron in yeah. like finales, you know, like in really important exactly. scenes. Exactly. Exactly. You, know, you can just, have a guy like that, but that's a mid season tertiary character. When, or it's like someone that gets killed at a pub. Exactly. You know, like the hound stabs Like him, in you know? the bells, when you're watching Danny fly around and the camera pans down to Euron and Jamie fighting, you can Jesus just Christ. you can feel the deflation. And you can also just feel the lack of interest in the people writing that part of it. And so like that's it's it's that's, it's, that's all I was trying to say. Yeah. It's very inconsistent, those later seasons. But the the fitful bits of genius that are still there have stuck with me. And watching For sure. watching a show that's just those strung together, I think could be could be wonderful. So I look forward also, to that. Also, it was still glorious. It was still know? a hell of a it thing was still to witness. Glorious. It was still like some of the best. It's still a treat. Like that same subscription fee or torrent file or however you watch it at someone's house or at a bar at a watch party. That same 
entry level of like, yes, I will give this an hour or hour 20. It you was can, it's like I was saying about art earlier. You can look at a, a crude drawing or you can look at a, like a masterpiece. And so if we're comparing masterpieces, how privileged are we? That's like if you're a billionaire or something and you're like, I only eat exquisite food. And it just – This the, is only the, the second of, finest swan in the world. Yes, exactly. The, the taste of – yes. No, it's that's true. you can differentiate between the greatest things. I mean so obviously we're coming from a – we're all coming from we, – we were spoiled. And I, th- I hope yeah. to God we're going to get spoiled again, dude. Come I agree. On. And it's especially it's especially relative to a lot of stuff that just feels like it's being churned out. That's just chum and just content and doesn't really mean anything at all in any direction. And I'm just sick of B minus C plus stuff. I would, you know, I like I like things that swing for the fences even when they whiff. So I'm I'll, I'll be there with my with my dragon eyes on. I am. Um, what do you think? Sorry, go on. No, what do I think about? Yeah. The same questions that you just asked me. You say you're going to be there with your dragon eyes on. You said you went from being sort of skeptical, I guess, and maybe a little bit like uh, dread, dreadful, like you're dreading it a little, to being are you, so you're excited. What made you feel excited? Like what was the thing that clicked for you? Watching the trailers and reading interviews where it seemed like there was a genuine interest in the prelude to the fighting. That made me happy. And I was like, okay, so this is this first season is not just going to be marking time until the dragons start killing each other. That this is actually, you're actually going to have tensions that simmer and boil over. And I, I, you know, I like it when people fight with words first. I like it. I like that part a lot. I like it when, when politicians just barely restrain themselves from killing each other. I think that's, that's fascinating. That's what I like about stories like Dune as well. And... The fact that they're going to have that kind of be the focus of the first season, I think, is is absolutely terrific because it, it gets at some at a dynamic you also see in A Song of Ice and Fire and across a lot of great stories, which is a lot of what politics is, is just barely restrained war. That politics is just barely not war. And that's that's what happens ultimately with the Dance of the Dragons. But I'm I'm excited that when it, it, it does turn into a a swarm of cgi money on the screen that it will it will not only be beautiful in that sense it will not only be spectacle but it will really have a foundation that will allow it to soar and if you know if we go into yeah you mentioned the daemon aemon fight over the god's eye because that on its own terms is one of the most metal things imaginable so if they if they execute that properly if they execute that properly that will be that could be better than anything in game of thrones so that's what I'm saying so to you, man. Here's to potentially building to that. Absolutely. But not just that, but just, you know, I think I feel like Matt Smith is going to carry this fantasy stuff on his face. Quite literally on his I'm, face. He does. Right. He does look the part of there's There's I no non mean way to say this, that he looks the part of someone who's not quite human. That's a mean <laughs> thing to say, but it's the case. He commits, though. That's one thing I really like. He he commits to being that person instead of uh, oh, he like, trying it. to be like Robert Pattinson. And I love our Pats. You know, like I, and I love it. I love the Rover. I love all of his small movies that he does with Cronenberg. Uh, I love that stuff. Our Pats but, is a genius, but that's his. He he ran hard away from that part of yeah, himself. That's what I'm saying. And Matt Smith is like, I can be a Targaryen, and I can be the Doctor. I can do both. This is a pretty great much comparison, actually. I would love to see them in switched roles. Now, I would love to. F- I want to see force Robert. Robert Pattinson into Game of Thrones armor. That's what I'm saying. And I want to see Matt he, Smith in, in the lighthouse. 
Oh my god, dude! What a great like switch up. That would be. Oh my god. Willem Dafoe would have playing... even less patience with him. Oh, dude, that movie! Holy crap! Um, one thing I was gonna ask that I didn't ask was, do you think HBO is gonna have enough money? to do the end of Fire and Blood. I guess really I'm just talking about the, the Dragon Pit and just the chaos and King's Landing collapsing. I mean, I don't know how many times you've read that, but that is, I mean, that's going to be, the that's crazier than anything. That's fucking insane. They better save the money for that one, yeah. Because that is... Like, what? That is that is bigger even than the bells, so they could... Oh, that's what I'm saying. They could have Like, it makes the, the bells time. look like a skirmish. Well, that's like, yeah, again, like with Tolkien, there's the 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 allure of fantasy being in the after days and that whatever you're getting a glimpse of is just a, a piece of what it used to be and now we're getting the real deal which has that's it has its saying. own perils for execution but you got the doom yet either and that might open season two but you said it i mean i just i want to see something i've never seen before like that's that's what i go to big budget genre fair for as i the mm-hmm. the novelty and not even in like a cheap you know just get startled in the moment way but something that I love the feeling of looking at something and thinking I'm I'm going to keep thinking about this. I'm just I'm looking at something that I will have in my mind's eye decades from now. It's just yeah. like sometimes you know when you see something that you're going to be thinking about it forever. And oh, that's such a good feeling. So I it's I like, hope to feel that how, once more. How did QT film people standing in a room differently? With Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, like how did he? How, there's so many ways that great directors have done it. How did he manage to keep doing it? Like just pulling up to the driveway, and that's like, and, and that's the magic of it that the ingredients never go away, and that you you can always 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 find a way to remix stuff, and that remixing stuff is really all it is, and all it has been going back. So that if you can find a way to lock into that again, which is you know it's it's easier said than done. But creatively, that's the juice. The action is the juice. And I think I think they might have it on their hands. We shall see. I hope so, dude. I hope they're inspired enough to to push it to that level. You know? Me too, like, brother. Like, like too. Vince Gilligan did with, with Breaking Bad to make something so boring seem so cinematic, for example. Well, you have all the money. You have all the, the backstory. You have all the fanfare. I mean, now make it. Now, if, if I mean, it's it's on a... It's literally on a platter just for the taking. Just take it to that next level and people will lose their minds. Agreed, brother. Agreed. Well, I think that's going to wrap us up here. on our. We go two more hours. Let's go. George R. R. Martin slash House <laughs> of the Dragon. Now we got to put you to bed, young man, or more importantly, put me to bed. So um, thanks for coming on, brother, especially to, to talk so much and so well about another episode you did. I really appreciated it, but I was just... That's the weirdest thing I've ever had a podcast s- about. We got so you. meta, <laughs> but I, I was just so happy for you and proud of you, and I'm glad we, glad we got to talk about it more. So, um, so tell the fine people, if they don't already know, where they can find you. Um, Gameofones.com, or just look up Game of Owns in your podcast app, or uh, look at our social media for stuff that we're posting. Uh, we just recorded our first episode after that and put it out the day that we're recording this. Yeah. I don't know if that's useful information or not for anyone, but there's a new episode after the George episode. And we talk about a lot of the stuff. If you basically want to hear me say the exact same stuff to Emmett, but not have him able to tra- help translate it for me, then you can tune into that. And uh, I just want to say this podcast rules Emmett is one of my favorite people to talk to in the world. And so this was a blast to 
get you uh, locked into my attention for an hour and a half. Thank you, sir. No, no place I would rather be, sir. Likewise to all of it. Don't tell Chloe. Oh, I would never dream of it. <laughs> can never, can never imagine how much trouble I'd be in. So thank you for not too much. Not trouble. too much. Just a, the usual not amount. Too much. She'd say the okay. Amount. Exactly. That's all it ever is. <laughs> So thank you so much for listening, folks. As always, you can rate and review us on Podbean, on Spotify, on iTunes, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf, where our patrons get a bunch of benefits, including going forward monthly episodes on Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. I've been doing Star Wars episodes for patrons, Lord of the Rings episodes for everybody. But now that Manu is coming onto the podcast so he can restart a Song of Ice and Fire, I'm going to keep both Lord of the Rings and Star Wars episodes going on a monthly basis just for patrons, starting up in September. So you can head on over to patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf if you haven't, if you want to keep listening to either of those episodes. I'm going to have a lot of fun in September, starting with The Pyre of Denethor for Lord of the Rings and Revenge of the Sith for Star Wars. Going to be a great time. But of course, the biggest news, of course is as I was saying that we're getting getting back to A Song of Ice and Fire, and I couldn't be happier about that. I've been missing my main story. I'm just, I'm so happy to get back into it. And as much as I'm going to miss Jeff, I'm really, really looking forward to doing episodes with Manu. We are going to have a great time and bring you some excellent, excellent episodes going forward. So that's going to be in a couple weeks. I'm not doing an episode next week. So in a couple weeks time, next time you hear my voice, we're going to be back with A Song of Ice and Fire and Sansa's third chapter in A Storm of Swords. So thank you so much for listening, thank you for your patience, and I will see you next time in Westeros.